Good morning. My name is Rose, and today's scripture reading is in Esther chapter 9, verse 1 through 10, 3. It can be found on page 415 in your Black Pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible or know someone who needs one, please feel free to take one of these home as our gift to you. Again, that's Esther 1, uh, 9, 1, 10, 3, through 10, 3. Now the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all provinces of King Asherah's to lay hands on those who sought to their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples, all the officials of the provinces and the seraphs and the governors of the royal agents who helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshahadatha and Dalphon and Aspa and Portha and Adalia and her. Aradatha and Parmasha and Arasal and Aradai and Bizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the sons of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king, and the king said to King Queen Esther, in Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's province? Now what is your wish? It shall be, it shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow to, also to do according to this day's edict and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were also in Susa gathered, gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives, and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that day a, a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who lived in the rural towns hold, hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. 
And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ashuerus, both near and far, obligating them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as a month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pure, that is, lots, to, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should, be, should return on his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term pure. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring to all who joined them. That, that without fail, they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every dine, province, and city, that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the um, commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abethal, and Mordecai, the Jew, gave full written authority, confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ashuerus in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed in their appointed seasons as Mordecai, the Jew, and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their feast and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. King Ashuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high, high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai, the Jew, was second in rank to King Ashuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. The word of the Lord. So as I said, we're going to finish the book of Esther today because we have to start something else next week, so we have to wrap it up. We have two chapters left, as Rose read for us, but one of them is very, very short, so it's really just one one portion of the book. Just to remind you, Esther is a unique book in the Bible. It's unique because it never mentions the name of God. Very unusual. It's the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention God at all. And so one commentator said that it is conspicuously non-religious. Conspicuously non-religious. And I think the reason is because it teaches us to remember and to recognize that God remains very active even when He seems absent. God remains very active when he seems, even when he seems absent to us. And Esther, thus, is especially relevant to us 
who are living as Christians in a secular culture that marginalizes God and is often very hostile to His people. So we learn to recognize God's providence, even as we ourselves make courageous decisions in pursuit of God's purposes, which is what we see in the book of Esther. Now let me recap just a little bit so we're all on the same page, and then we'll, we'll plunge into the last portion of the book. As you might recall, Haman, the enemy of the Jews, had planned to annihilate the Jews altogether, the whole, the whole ethnic group. So he cast lots, and then he set a date for the destruction of God's people. He had convinced the king to issue an edict, a decree, to allow everybody who wanted to, to attack the Jews on that day, kill them, their families, their children, and plunder their property. But Queen Esther, who herself is Jewish, intercedes on behalf of her people. And Haman is eventually hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, the leader of the Jews, who then, Mordecai is then elevated by the king to the position of highest authority. But as we looked at last week, the royal edicts in Persia are irrevocable. So Esther had to intercede again and begged the king to issue another decree, enabling the Jews to defend themselves against their enemies on the day that Haman had set for their destruction. And that's where we left it last week. So we left it at these two decrees kind of conflicting each other and and a battle about to begin. Now, throughout this series, we have compared reading the book of Esther to watching a game of chess. And I understand most of us are probably not chess enthusiasts, But I do think it's a fitting comparison in St. Louis, the the chess capital of America. I don't know if you knew that. St. Louis is officially recognized by the Congress to be the chess capital of America. So you're welcome if you didn't know that. This is where you live. It's very exciting. And unlike every game in the World Championship in London, this game in Esther does not end in a draw. We will witness a checkmate today, and we will celebrate that victory. I've entitled my sermon, Party in the Church. Party in the Church. There should be a little more response. If I said, if I said there was a party at my house, I think you would be a little more excited, but party at the church. And you think maybe, you know, church parties, maybe they're not as, as party as other parties, but we'll, we'll see what we can do here, okay? My outline is very simple. We're going to look at the victory of God's people here and victory of God on their behalf. And then we'll look at the celebration that follows that victory. So let me describe this victory. I want to point out three things about this victory. So what kind of victory was it? Number one, it was an unlikely victory. It was an unlikely victory. In Esther 9 verse 1, it gives us kind of the summary of what happened. So let me read this to you again. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. That's the setup. It's a very unlikely victory. Everything was set for the enemies of the Jews to prevail, and yet the reverse has occurred. Now, I did some research into unlikely military victories and came across this battle of Longiwala, uh, probably an obscure battle to most of us, certainly was to me, but I was fascinated by the story. 
It took place in December of 1971 as part of a war between Pakistan and India. Pakistani troops and tanks crossed the border into India and ran into a company of the Indian army. And this, this small group had 100 men and a jeep. 100 men and a jeep. I love how this story is told. And some of you are thinking, I'll take my chances with the jeep. But that was not much to oppose uh, a numerous uh, part of the Pakistani army that came with, with tanks and weapons. Now, the major on the Indian side decided that they were not going to retreat. They are going to stand their ground. They were sort of surprised by this attack. And in the course of four days, the Indian men not only stood their ground, but won a decisive victory. Now, their victory was caused by several different things. It was a combination of poor decisions on the enemy's part. In fact, the Pakistani commander was later tried for negligence. That's how poorly he performed. Uh, the Indian uh, military had a superior defensive position, and they used the available resources, including the jeep and the anti-tank weapon mounted on the jeep, very wisely. And of course, there was the timely aid of the Indian Air Force. Now, when it was all over, now listen to the numbers, it's just incredible. When it was all over, two soldiers were killed on the Indian side, so two out of a hundred. I think the jeep survived. But the Pakistanis lost 200 men, 34 tanks, and some 500 vehicles. It's just amazing. How can, how can that happen? It's such an unlikely victory. Nobody could have predicted that happening. And when you read the book of Esther, that's the same feeling you get. Of course, we've read it many times. We know how it ends. But if you read it for the first time, and you realize that the whole machinery of the empire was against them, that the most powerful person after the king, Haman, was, was a devoted enemy of the Jewish people, committed to their destruction, that the royal edict was written and sent out to every corner of Persia. Everybody was on board to destroy the Jews. And yet, when the enemies of the Jews were about to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Haman was executed. Mordecai was elevated. Esther regained the king's favor. The royal edict of life was proclaimed, and the enemies of the Jews were destroyed. It was an unlikely victory. Now, if you're a careful reader of the Bible, you certainly notice that in the book of Esther, it's full of such reversals, sudden terms of, turns of events, unexpected changes. The whole book is, is, is built on that. This literary device, to, device is called peripety. And so the whole book is, play, is, is built on peripety. And the author of Esther is a big fan of this device. Vashti is banished. Esther becomes a queen. Those are all turns of events. Hasuerus can't sleep, discovers a record of an assassination thwarted by Mordecai, which then leads to Mordecai being paraded on the streets of Susa instead of being hanged, which is the same day that, that Haman was going to hang him on the gallows. Haman, of course, builds a gallows for Mordecai only to be hanged on the same gallows himself. The plot of the book is built on privity. So in a way, we expect the Jews to win as unlikely as it may have looked. 
Now there's another reason why we should expect this unlikely victory. Peribody is not just a feature in the book of Esther. The whole story of the Bible is built on this reversal, this idea of an unexpected reversal of fortune. The history of redemption, the story of the Bible, has the greatest reversal at its very center. Now, let me tell you this story, lest we forget the larger narrative of the Bible. Humanity is separated from God by sin. God, in his mercy, sends a Savior. Jesus Christ comes into the world, becomes human, reveals God to us, full of grace and truth, heals and teaches, loves and forgives. But he is rejected by his own people. He's falsely accused and arrested, and the whole machinery of the empire is engaged against him. The most powerful people are committed to his destruction. The sentence of death is pronounced. He is led to the cross. He is nailed to the cross. He dies on the cross. And then, just to leave no doubt of his defeat, he is buried in the tomb. To a reader that doesn't know the rest of the story, right? And we are, we are not those people. We know the rest of the story. But to a reader who doesn't know how it ends, they would conclude undoubtedly that God has failed, that his plan of salvation has not worked. But when the women come to the tomb to take care of the would-be Savior's body, they find the tomb empty. The great reversal, the great privity of of the redemption story. They meet an angel, and the angel says, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. And shortly after that, Jesus appears to his disciples, and the first thing he says to them, he says, peace be with you. Now, this is not just a common greeting. It's not just good evening, right? He's communicating the truth of what has been accomplished. He's saying it's peace with God that you now have. He's won the unlikeliest of victories. God's plan worked, after all. The cross was not a defeat because Scripture tells us by the blood of the cross, he made peace and reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. And when Jesus on the cross, when he was dying, when he said, it is finished, he didn't, he didn't mean that the hope of humanity for salvation is finished. He meant that the work of reconciliation and redemption is finished. And that work received its validation, received its approval from God in the empty tomb. And all the enemies of humanity have been defeated in this unlikely victory. Even death was defeated in this unlikely victory. That's the story of Scripture. And it casts a shadow to all the other stories. And so when you read Esther, you should expect a reversal. You should expect a peripety. You should expect that God's people will prevail. And that what seemed like a plan that didn't work will work and will accomplish God's purposes. It's an unlikely victory that we see in Esther and we see on the cross in the empty tomb. Number two, it was a bloody victory. I'm not going to dwell on this, but we need to notice that the enemies did not surrender. There was a battle. There was fighting. 800 men were killed in Susa over the two days of fighting. 75,000 died throughout Persia. Now, these were people who attacked the Jews. They, they provoked that violence. 
but they were killed. There was blood spilled to accomplish this victory. And the Jews got relief from their enemies only after their enemies were dead. And number three, it was a decisive victory. It was a decisive victory. The book ends with a brief description of Mordecai's reign in chapter 10, that that short three-verse chapter gives us a conclusion of the book, and it basically tells us how great Mordecai is. But within that, it tells us that he was great for his people, that he reigned over the empire, second in power only to the king, and he reigned for the benefit of his people, of God's people. He enjoyed power and influence for years after this victory. He ensured that the Jews were protected, they were prospering in Persia. So the Jews went from an ethnic and religious minority on the brink of annihilation to a group that was feared and respected in the empire. So much so that other people wanted to join them. People were converting and becoming Jewish so they would be on the winning side. It was a decisive victory. It is a victory that ensured lasting peace and prosperity for God's people. And I think, and I've wrestled with this this week, and Chuck and I had a great conversation about this. How do you interpret this second request of Esther? When she comes and says, so they had this, this great day of fighting. They've, they've, they've annihilated their, their enemies. Anybody who opposed the Jews, they've annihilated them. And then the second day, Esther comes to the king, and the king says, what else do you want? Smitten by Esther. What else do you want? And Esther says, give us one more day. Give us a second day in Susa, in the capital city, so we can kill the rest of the enemies of the Jews. I think the decisiveness of the victory and the prolonged peace after the fighting has to do with the second request, with the second day. Now, I have to tell you that commentators disagree. And scholars argue about that. I have wrestled with that. Some say, well, this is just bloodthirsty Esther. She has the advantage, and she's going to use it, and they're going to kill more people they don't like. Some think that that she should have shown mercy. She should have pulled back. They have survived. Why kill more people? However, this is where I've landed. I think Esther took this opportunity to finish the job and ensure a longer peace for her people. I think in Esther's mind, she not only wanted to survive this and just preserve her people, she wanted to gain mastery over her enemies and get relief from them. Now, the language to me is reminiscent of Israel's conquest of the land of promise. I think there is a connection here. Remember, when Israel was led into the land and God told them to conquer the enemies, right? To conquer those nations and to get rid of them completely. And they didn't do that. They conquered the land. They did that. They've enjoyed the land. But they didn't do the second day's worth of fighting. They've limited it to one day. They've said, this is enough. We've made it. The land is under our control. We have survived this. And they left it at that. And Esther is not going to leave it at that. And we know with Israel's history, those nations became a problem for them again and again and again later. 
And so Esther may be thinking about that, maybe just being wise in the moment. She goes to the king and she says, we need another day. Give us another day to finish the job. Now, I don't think that meant that they went from house to house and slaughtered people they didn't like. I think they were still on the defensive. They still exercised their lawful right under the edict of the king to protect against anybody who assaulted them. And yet, there were 300 more enemies that were killed that day. They needed a second day. I think we know this from our experience as well. I often think of this quote by John Owen. John Owen said that we must be killing sin or sin will be killing us. You know that quote? We must be engaged always in killing sin or the, other, the only other option is that sin will be killing us. It will continue to kill us. If we're not on the offensive, if we're not pursuing killing sin, that sin will be killing us. And when I think about my own battle with sin and the stories I hear from many of you, I realize that for a lot of us, we're just trying to survive. We're happy with just one day of fighting against sin. We're happy we made it through the day and we want to pull back and relax and rest a little bit. But Esther teaches us that often we need that second day. You need to go before the king and you need to ask for another day of fighting. You need to go further into that battle. Scripture promises to us in Galatians 5 that if we walk by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. This is not a promise of survival. It's a promise of mastery over sin. Now, this is a big promise. Many other passages in Scripture that describe the Christian life as a life of victory over sin. And yet, for many of us, that's not our experience. And I think part of our lack of victory over sin has to do with us not going all the way and pulling back when we feel like we have made enough progress. And we become complacent. And we say, well, I've got that under control. And you kind of sit back and you rest. But Esther teaches us, go ask for another day. Often, we need a second day of fighting. Now let's look at the celebration. We've looked at the victory this decisive, though unlikely, but decisive, bloody victory. What is this celebration like? The rest of chapter 9 is about an institution of a holiday. The holiday is called Purim because it's based on the, the word for, for dice. Pur is the word for, for dice. And so Purim is the name of the holiday to commemorate this victory. But before the holiday is instituted, and I want to talk about that, there's a spontaneous celebration that breaks out. And so I want to talk about this kind of celebration and the first aspect of it, it is spontaneous. Now look with me at Esther 9, 17 through 19. The Jews in the provinces, they fought on the 13th day of Adar and the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews in Susa, of course, fought on the 13th and the 14th day, the second day that Esther got for them, 
And they rested in the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. So it seems to me, before it got all coordinated by Mordecai and Esther and became instituted, it seems to me that it just started as simply reacting to the victory and celebrating the victory right after it was won. So in the provinces, they fought on the 13th day, and then when they stopped fighting and they saw the victory, they celebrated the next day. And they made it a day of of feasting and gladness. But in the city, they had another day to fight, but when they were done then, the very next day, they said, well, we're going to celebrate now. And there's a natural response to what God has done for them. Now, I'm sure you have experienced that in your life. God does something in your life, and you spontaneously celebrate that. You pray, or you give somebody a call, or you sing, and you say, God did this. And right after it was done, you celebrate. It's a spontaneous kind of a celebration. There are many victories won by God in our lives, and we need to celebrate them in the moment. Now, many of us feel profoundly grateful to God for what He has done in our lives. So our hearts spontaneously overflow into praise. Now, let me give you some examples. If you have seen God's victory in your life, you've got to celebrate it. If you were under the edict of death, like the Jews in the book of Esther, and your enemies were just waiting for the calendar pages to turn, but the reverse occurred, you've got to celebrate that victory. If you identify with, with those kind of emotions in your own life. If you were outnumbered and all you had was a jeep, right, against the, the numerous army with tanks, and yet God has given you victory, you've got to celebrate that. If you have cried out to God from the depths, you know, the Psalms talk about crying out to Him from the depths, Some of us know that experience where there's no other hope but God and you cry out to Him and He heard your cry. You've got to celebrate that victory. You've pleaded with Him and you've asked for something and and He gave it to you. you. You celebrate that. If God has healed you, if He has removed sickness from your body or confusion from your brain, or despair from your heart. You've got to celebrate that victory. If God has given you grace in your illness, maybe He's not healed you, but He's given you grace in your illness. He's given you comfort in your suffering. He has infused meaning into your pain. If this has been your experience, you've got to celebrate that victory. When you have experienced that in the moment, your heart can't help but overflow with praise and thanksgiving. If God has protected you, maybe you were close to death and yet you were spared. He spared you. You've got to celebrate that victory, that experience. If God has delivered you when you were spiraling towards utter chaos. There are some testimonies in this room, I know, that there was a time in your life where you felt like with every decision, you're just getting deeper and deeper into chaos. And then God reached out and and pulled you up, pulled you out of that. Got to celebrate that victory. If God has sustained you by His grace during a stressful, painful, at times 
unbearable season of your life, you've got to celebrate that victory. We have some stories here where from outside you look at that life and you say, I'm, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know how they made it through. I can't explain how they have survived that. There are some of you I know that I'm thinking, I don't know how they do it day to day. I don't know how they're managing it. I don't know how they're making it. And yet God is victorious in your life. You've got to celebrate those victories. If God has provided for you, if he has given you a job, you were looking for a job, and he gave you a job. This is from his hand. Or maybe he has provided for you when you had no job. You don't go to work, you're not making a paycheck, and yet you have money. God has been providing for you. You have to celebrate that victory. If God has directed you, if he has given you wisdom, if he has stopped you from making a stupid decision, looking back, you said, man, I could very well have easily made that decision. My life would have been ruined. And yet God has prevented you. He's hindered you from making that decision. You've got to celebrate that victory. If God has cleansed you from shame and guilt, if there was a time in your life where you could not look at yourself in the mirror, you'd look at yourself and you'd be disgusted with yourself, be repelled by yourself. And God has cleansed you. God has changed who you are and he's changed how you see yourself. You've got to celebrate that. that that's a victory. You've got to celebrate that. If God has shown light in your darkness, if he showed up in your life, and he lets you feel his love. In a moment when you have forgotten what love feels like. If he has done that in your life, you have got to celebrate that victory. Now there are many, many victories in our lives. And we have to celebrate, we have to react to them. And we have to say, I will praise you. I will thank you. I will live a victorious life. I will live in a way that that celebrates these many victories of God in our lives. But underneath all of these life victories, there's another decisive, bloody, unlikely victory that trumps them all. And we've got to celebrate that. There's a victory underneath all the victories. There's the victory that is the cause and guarantee of all the other victories in your life. Yes, it's good to be delivered from a sin. And there's some great stories of that. Somebody would say, I, I was caught in the sin. Couldn't break free. And God delivered me. Delivered me from that. And we would say, that's great. But it is incredibly better to be delivered from all sin. Isn't it? Yes, we can celebrate the victory of being delivered from a particular vice, a particular problem. But to be delivered from all problems, cosmically, from all sin, is infinitely better. It's okay, it's good to, be, to overcome guilt of a particular sinful decision or act. It's good to be relieved from that guilt for a particular thing that you did. But it's unimaginably better to hear God say to you, with all the authority of God, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't it? That's the victory underneath 
all those other victories. It is great to be healed of an illness, but it is infinitely, amazingly better to be free from death. And that is what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross and in the empty tomb. You see, in our story, the enemies of the Jews only hoped to gain the mastery over them. They're only hoping, they were about to do that, they were hoping that they would be successful at that. But in our case, our enemies had mastery over us already. We were slaves to sin, doing the will of the devil, unable to resist the flesh and stuck in the patterns of the world. That is our true condition outside of Christ. And when Jesus came, he freed us from all our enemies. He freed us from all our masters. He won this victory for us, and it was a bloody victory. With his own blood, he rescued us. And it was a decisive victory. Esther needed another day to ensure a lasting peace. Jesus said, I'm going to take three just to make sure all the enemies are gone so that you have peace forever. Now, some of us are celebrating this victory and other victories in our lives right now. Some of you may be moved by me reminding you of what God has done in your life. But what about those of us who are not quite feeling it? And there are some here, maybe just a couple of people, who are not feeling it this morning. Maybe you come to church and you're not in a praising mood. Maybe you hear me say these things, but you don't feel particularly up to praising God and celebrating His victory. But God hasn't changed. His victories are still just as real as they've always been. He still deserves your praise. So what do you do with your unwilling heart? What do we do with that? And here we come to the second observation about the Jews' celebration. Number two, it was spontaneous. It began a spontaneous celebration, but it became a regular celebration. It became a regular planned celebration. Look at Esther 9, verses 26 through 28. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term poor. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves. Notice the language, firmly obligated themselves and their offspring, and all who joined them, even the converts, that without fail, they would keep these two days according to what was written, and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation and every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among the, their descendants. They've instituted an annual holiday called Purim. They gave it a name, and they've obligated themselves. They said, we are not going to break with this resolve we're going to celebrate this victory every year for two days. We're going to gather. We're not going to forget God's victory on our behalf in Persia. Now, we've all just celebrated Thanksgiving Day. Some of us are still recovering from that. There was a time when there was no Thanksgiving holiday, right? It, it happened at a certain point. Different states started celebrating it at different times. And then October 3rd, 1863... Abraham Lincoln issued a proclamation, much like Hasuerus issues edicts and decrees 
the president issued a proclamation and he called on every citizen of the United States and even the sojourners, those who have, have come to the States, to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. That's how Thanksgiving became a national holiday. It took an edict. It took an institutionalization of that. doesn't mean nobody was thankful before. It doesn't mean people were not even celebrating that. But it took a plan. It took a decision. It took an obligation on everybody's part to say, we will celebrate it on that Thursday of November every year. You may not feel like celebrating God's victories today. Maybe you're here at church and you're not particularly moved by any of this. But let me remind you, you are here. You are at church on this Lord's Day morning. Because you have committed to celebrate God's victory every Sunday. At a certain point in your life, and maybe it happened gradually and naturally because you grew up in a Christian home. Or maybe it happened when you were dramatically converted as a teenager or in your 20s or 30s. You said to yourself, I will obligate myself to celebrate God's victory every Lord's Day morning. And I will show up. And whether I feel like it or I don't feel like it, whether I feel particularly moved, whether there's a particular victory I'm thinking of or I'm just thinking about the gospel itself, I will be there and I will raise my hands and I will sing and I will listen to scripture read and preached and I will come to the table to remember what Jesus has done for me and I will do it with other people. Now, what is this? This, this is a, a regular planned celebration, much like Purim. We make decisions. We obligate ourselves and our children to not forget what God has done for us. So as a way of application, let me say this. Do not neglect Sunday worship. Do not neglect Lord's Day worship. It is actually very good for you. This keeps you engaged in celebrating the Lord's victories in your life. This is not just a ritual to go through and feel like you have, you have fulfilled your obligations. This is a living commandment that is helping you to celebrate and to engage with the gospel, to be reminded, because we forget. We, friends, we are not that mindful of what God has done in our lives. No matter how great the victory is, we quickly forget, and we get distracted like squirrels. We just get distracted, and it's just, we're thinking about something completely different. After a huge victory of God in your lives, so we need regularity, we need intentionality, we need a plan. Now the same true of the Christian year. There is a weekly rhythm of celebration on the Lord's Day. There's also an annual rhythm. We have seasons. We're going to start Advent next Sunday, first Sunday of Advent. We want you to do a devotional, right? We, we want to create an environment where we are all thinking about the coming of Christ. We're reflecting on his first coming, but we're also preparing for his second coming. Advent is also about hope of his second coming. Now, we do that every year. You have four weeks before, before Christmas to focus on that. Why? Because, frankly, most of us forget that he's coming again. And we live like that promise doesn't exist. And so we need to be reminded 
And of course, after Advent, there's Christmas. Christmas is a reminder for us that we need to celebrate God's victory in the incarnation, that Jesus actually became human for us, that he loved us so much that he became like us. He says, I will forever connect myself to you so I could save you. He assumed the human nature so he can heal the human nature. And then after Christmas, there's Lent and Holy Week. We focus on his suffering. We focus on on his death on Good Friday. Holy Saturday is a time for us to to meditate on, on his burial, the finality of his death. And yet, in the hope of the resurrection, we consider that that he really died, and then Easter, Resurrection Day morning, what a day. We rejoice at his victory. Now, there's some people who say, well, you should celebrate that every Sunday. Yes, I agree. Every Sunday is a Resurrection Sunday. But it's good to have, once a year, a reminder to specifically focus on that and say, how does that affect my life, even my year? What does it matter to me? And then, of course, there's Ascension Day. We celebrate that Jesus rose again, and then he was with us for a time, and then he ascended to be with the Father so he can intercede for us, so he can make sure we remain saved. Your salvation is held by Christ. All the blessings you have are blessings in the heavenly places with Christ. He becomes your advocate, your mediator, the ongoing ministry, the session of Christ. Why do we need to be reminded of that? Because... If I'm anything, if you're anything like me, I I live my life often without any thought that Jesus is right now interceding for me. I need to be reminded of that. I need to be reminded that my salvation does not depend on me, but depends on Him. He's my advocate. And though I sin, I have an advocate with the Father. And then, of course, Pentecost, the celebration of God's ongoing victory in the church by sending His Spirit by blessing this community of people. He's winning. He continues to conquer enemies. What a great reminder on Pentecost to know that the Holy Spirit of God is on our side, that the church of God is on our side. That's the Christian year, and we go through it every year, and we are submitting our idea of time. We're submitting our routines to the gospel. That's very valuable to us, forgetful people. Number three, the celebration is an inclusive celebration. I'll finish with that and we'll come to the table. It's spontaneous. It begins as a spontaneous from the heart celebration. It becomes planned and regular, and it is an inclusive celebration. Look at Esther 9, verse 22. They are celebrating, and they say that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Part of the celebration, and by the way, annual celebration becomes a tradition, was sharing food with others and sending gifts to the poor. Now, some of you do that over the holidays. You're more mindful of of others, and you help. Why? Now, the reason here is, as it should be the reason for us, for all the generous activity that we have over the holidays, so that everyone could participate in celebrating God's victory. You see, when the wealthier Jews were celebrating, they had plenty of food. They had a big house to have everybody over. What about the poor Jews? They didn't have anything to celebrate with, so the wealthy people would give them stuff to eat. 
They would send gifts to the poor. So they would celebrate, they would see God's victory through the church, through the community of Christ. And they would celebrate that. And it became a universal celebration for God's people. But it can only happen if we help each other. And when I think about our church, and as we transition to the table of the Lord as we're going to feast on Him, that's what we do at Chatham as well. But think about our church. All the giving that we do, the investment of time, the investment of skill, the investment of emotion and relationships, all of that that we do, why are we doing that? We're doing that so that more people can participate in the celebration of God's victory. Certainly in the church, right? We pick up each other's slack. We carry each other's burdens. The money that is given to the church gets used for various ministries. It gets used for mercy, for generosity. It gets used to help people. It gets used to support particular ministries that are vital for the health of the church. When you're giving, yes, it's going to come back to you in some way. Sure, you're going to reap the benefit of that. But you're also giving on behalf of other people who can't give. Your resources are going to be disseminated to other peoples and bless them and involve them into the celebration of God's victory. Your time, the same way. Your skill, the same way. Your relationships, the same way. What we do in church as we really live as a community, as we do that, includes other people into the celebration of God's victory on our behalf. And we do the same in our community at large. We want other people to be at this table with us. As we come to the table, we want other people to join us here. A good exercise in missional thinking is to pray and to think as you take communion, who else would I want to be here along with me coming to the Lord's table? Who in my life needs to hear the gospel? Who in my life needs my love? Who in my life needs my help? So they too can share in the celebration of God's victory. So we go and we bring gifts to people with our money, our time, our skills, our love, in hope that they too will experience God's victory and come to celebrate with us. So as you come to the communion table, we will sing, and I encourage you to celebrate his victory. In the immortal words of Miley Cyrus, <laughs> put your hands up. They're playing your song. You know it's going to be okay. I'm going to finish with a different song, okay? This didn't land as I imagined, but it's a better song to, to finish this sermon with. And then we'll pray and come, come to the table. This is a favorite of the senior Bible study, senior group that I'm a part of, and it's wonderful for us to sing that. I'm learning some great hymns by singing with that group. I heard an old, old story, how a Savior came from glory. How he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning, of his precious blood's atoning. Then I repented of my sins and won the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood.